Father, what a blessing it is to be in your house once again this morning to come before you and worship it. Gather with your people and Father, just to spend time fellowshiping with those whom we are joined together in Christ. And Father, just thank you for this body of believers and thank you for the brothers and sisters who are here and for those who are still in Roxbury. And may you bless them where they are. Know that we're thinking about them and we're praying about them and we love them and we miss them. Lord, as we've already prayed for Daniel, as we send one of our own off into college for another year, Lord, you be with him and watch over him. I'll just continue to transform him into the man that you're calling him to be, and Lord, may he experience your grace more and more this, this year at school. Lord, I pray for the young men that are going to. Come into his club and hear the gospel and experience what it is to have lasting peace and lasting happiness in Christ. I just pray for the souls that you're preparing to hear that message from Daniel. I just pray that you would give Daniel the boldness to proclaim your gospel truth to the students in Council. Father, we ask now as we come to your word that you would settle our hearts and our minds and that you would just help us to block out those distractions, that you would block out those distractions. Or the weeks that we've had, the weeks that we're going into, whatever it may be, just help us focus today, right now, on your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we listen, you open up our ears and our hearts so that we can not only hear the words, but take them in and understand what that Christ is our true priest. That Christ has entered once for all into the true holy of holies and to do that by the true sacrifice of himself. Father, help us to see this morning how Christ is the substance to the shadows we see in the occult. Help me, Father, as I preach, and give me a strength that only you can give. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take your word and minister to us and do it to what you see. As this thing in Christ's name. Amen. So I just gave you the outline of the sermon. We've known that, right? No. Um, if you weren't here last week, last week I preached from Galatians 4 1 through 7. And in that passage, we were looking at Christ and his coming and how his coming frees us from the elemental spirits of the world. And if you remember, I said that phrase, elemental spirits, can be translated and interpreted three different ways. First, it can refer to fundamental principles or rudimentary teachings of a given discipline or system. And it is used that way in Hebrews 5.12, where the writer writes, for, that, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. That basic principles is once again the same phrase translated elementary principles. Second, it can refer to four, ele- to four elemental substances earth, fire, wind, and water, that many ancients in that time believed were the material components of the world. It's translated that way in 2 Peter 3.10, where Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the war, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Heavenly bodies, again, is that same elementary principles. It's the same phrase. A third way it can be understood is with reference to evil and demonic spiritual beings. And it's used by Paul in Colossians 2.20 when he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you 
submit to regulations. And Colossians 2.20, that phrase, elemental spirits of the world, is the same phrase used in Galatians 3, where he says we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In the context of Galatians 4, 1 through 7, I believe Paul twofold is speaking of the first way it's interpreted being elementary principles, basic teachings, things that we need to know. But I also believe it's speaking about sin and the evil spirits. Today what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the first one, why I believe it is basic oracles of God, what God was trying to teach and to show us through the Old Covenant. So we're going to do something that's a little bit different. I'm not going to take one passage and preach straight through it. i got three individual texts. Yes, I know I'm skipping verses. Yes, I know this is not the full and intent and the complete meaning behind the scriptures, behind what, I'm, what we're looking at, but it is getting at what we need to understand. So first, the first thing I want you to do and what I want you to have in your mind while we, while we work through this is shadows. You can see behind me, shadows and substance. We all know what shadows are. Shadows are those things that we make when we hold our hand under light and there's something cast in the ground. It's in that shadow, if you've never thought about it, that you can actually learn something about the substance that's cast in the shadow. For instance, if you hold your hand over a table, you can see that you have five fingers. You put one away, you see that one that one went away. You have a wedding ring one, depending how close you have your hand, you can see the wedding ring sometimes on the shadow. Turn it sideways, ladies, your diamond will probably be sticking out a little bit. You learn in the substance, or in the shadow, something about the substance. However fuzzy, however unclear, however difficult it is to see, you are learning something about the substance because of the shadow. What I want to do today is go into Hebrews, and we're going to look at what the Old Covenant and the law under the Old Covenant, namely the priests, the tabernacle, and the sacrifices. They were a shadow of something to come. We were learning in them something of the thing that was to come. So we're going to go to Hebrews. We're going to start in chapter 7. We're going to look at verse 11 and verses 26 through 28. So here's where we're going to start with the priests. Hebrews 7, 11. And then 26 through 28. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Remember verse 26. Now, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses and weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The priesthood was central to the Jewish people, and it literally defined who the Jewish people were. The priests were to be the mediators between Israel and God, but they also were to represent God back to Israel. It was their responsibility to daily attend to the tabernacle and to offer sacrifices for sins. And in Exodus 28, 1-3, God instructs Moses to bring his sons, Aaron and Aaron's sons, before him, and they will be consecrated from among the people of Israel to serve God as priests. 
There was not much that happened in the life of Israel apart from the priests. Now the highest honor, other than being called to be a priest, the highest honor that one could receive in the priesthood was to be the high priest. This was the one person in the whole of Israel that was able to go after very much preparation and to enter into the Holy of Holies, which was the place where God's presence dwelt on earth. The preparations for entering in the Holy of Holies was a week-long preparation. The high priest would go into, I believe it was the most holy place, and he would not leave for seven days. He was trying to keep himself clean. He would wash himself. He would prepare himself. He would offer sacrifices for himself to make sure that there was no sin unaccounted for in his life. After he did all of that, he would go one more time, take off his clothes, bathe, offer one more sacrifice, put on a different set of clothes that was specific only for entering into the most holy place, go in for very few moments, come back out. Seven days for about five minutes, maybe, presence in the Lord. So you can imagine the honor that this is, but you can see the preparations that are taking this. This was not just a, hey, let's walk in and hold the holes. If you remember, I believe it was Aaron's sons who offered... Un, um, unsanctified or uncalled for uh, incense in the face of the Lord, and they were struck dead because they hadn't prepared themselves to go into the Holy Holies. So while this was an honor, there's something in that that we see. The high priest could only enter once a year, but the very reason for the establishment of the priesthood was so that the people of God would have the presence of the Most High God among so the priesthood was so God's presence would be with the people. But only one person in the whole of Israel got to go into the presence of the Lord. And it was only for once a year. And it was only for a few minutes. And in chapter 7, verse 11, we understand the reason. We read, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. Even, through, even though the Levitical priests were central to the Mosaic system, they were not capable of truly establishing and accomplishing the task of mediating between God and men. Israel has been waiting and would not have been waiting for a great high priest if the Levitical priesthood had been sufficient. Think about it. Even in the establishment, even in the fact that the Levitical priesthood, there was one priest after another, after another, after another, and this continued and continued and continued until Christ. If the priesthood would have been able to accomplish what it was set out to accomplish, there would have been no need for another priest. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, don't work yourself out of a job? The priests had no fear of that. They could not work themselves out of a job. No matter what they did, they could not. They could not rightfully mediate between God and Israel. There was, however, a need all along for a great high priest to perform the final act of atoning for sin. The very conception of a Levitical priesthood demonstrated the cause of its insufficiency. If the Levitical priesthood itself could attain perfection, there would have been no need for another one to come. There would have been no need for the Messiah to come and to serve as mediator between God and his people. The insufficiencies of the Levitical priesthood as an entire system stand as a shadow to the fully sufficient great high priest of Christ. That's what we see in chapter in verses 26 through 28. In Christ, we have the high priest that we need. 
We have the high priest because, as the writer of Hebrews says, he is holy, and that he has fully fulfilled the entire law. He is innocent because even though he was in every way tempted as we are, he was still sinless. Hebrews 4.15. He is unstained in that he did not succumb to worldliness. If you remember, one of the temptations of the devil to Jesus was, you bow down to me, I'll give you everything in the world. I'll give you all the kingdoms. The devil is tempting him with something I believe Christ knows is already accomplished. My Father's given me the kingdoms already. All I need to do is fulfill the will. The devil is very short-sighted. Christ had the long game. He separated from sinners in that even though he took our flesh, he was sinless. And he is exalted above the heavens, which means his sanctuary is not the earthly tabernacle, but it is the true holy of holies. Jesus Christ serves as our high priest in the, the, capital T, the holy of holies in heaven. Which brings us to our next shadow, the tabernacle. Hebrews 9, 6 through 10. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he, but only once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink. Various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of Reformation. Preparations that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is the exact design of the lamb and tabernacle that God gave Moses in Exodus 25 through 30. We're not going to look at all of the specific details that go into that, but we're going to look at the overall design of the tabernacle and its courts. Because what you see in verse in verse 7, I believe it is, verse 8, by this, meaning the way the tabernacle is designed, the Holy Spirit is indicating something. He was trying, under the Old Covenant, to teach the Israelites something. He's trying to show us something. He was trying to show the Israelites something. By this, meaning the way the tabernacle is established with the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place with in between. He's trying to show us something. The tabernacle was a two-room tent that was the center of all of Israelite worship under the Old Covenant. It also served as the temporary dwelling place for God. Later, once Israel entered the Promised Land, the temple replaced the tabernacle. But around this tabernacle, there was a 150-foot-long and 75-foot-wide curtain or wall that was surrounding the tabernacle itself. This wall created the court of the tabernacle. It was in this court that the bronze altar was located. Now this is directly, you walk through the front of the tabernacle, right in front of you there's a, a bronze altar. This is where the Israelites would bring their offerings on a daily basis to the priests to offer them. Well listen, if you were a lay person of Israel, you dare not go any further. You don't take one step beyond that altar because you're not authorized to be back there. You are not in the priesthood. Beyond that, there was a basin full of water that the priests would use to wash themselves before they entered into the holy place. But beyond this courtyard stood the tabernacle, which, as stated before, was divided into two rooms. The holy place was the first one you came to. The most holy place, or the holy of holies, was behind that. 
It was in this first room that the holy place, the one priest was chosen every week to tend to the seven lamps morning and evening, keeping them fully flamed, according to Exodus 2, 20, 2, 27 and 20, and to stoke the coals on the altar of incense, upon which they dropped handfuls of incense, of incense, filling the room with a delicious cloud, but none dared to glance into the most holy place on pain of death. They had no access whatsoever. So again, here we have the tabernacle as the center of Israelite worship, but we also have the tabernacle as the dwelling place of God on earth. But the presence of the Lord is so far separated from the regular Israelites because they can't even get beyond the altar. But even the presence of God in the most holy place is separated from the ordinary priests, those who are to do the mediating for Israel. How can a priest truly mediate for God for Israel if he can't get to the holy place? Once a day, once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest, after performing that very elaborate ceremony, for himself and for a family would offer a sacrifice. And then he would offer the sacrifice for the nation of Israel. And then, and only then, was he able to step into the holy place, take the incense, offer it to God, sprinkle blood on the altar, and walk out. It is in these rituals, the daily birth offerings, and the tending to the holy place in the yearly day of atonement that the writer is talking about when he says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. It's the infrequent nature of the high priest's offering and the structure of the tabernacle demonstrated that sinful men could not approach a holy God. Even after provision was made for the approach to take place through sacrifice, it was only allowed once a year, and it was only allowed, and furthermore, the repetitive nature of the Day of Atonement highlighted that the priestly work of the sons of Aaron would only come to an end when something final arrived. This is why the author says the Holy Spirit was indicating something through the architecture of the tabernacle. Even he, being the Holy Spirit, was crying out for the day when the final sacrifice would come. See, as long as there was a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place, the people were not fully in the presence of God. They could not draw near to God with confidence, thus the veil between the most holy place and the holy place indicated incompleteness and an inability to approach God. But we need to see what the writer of Hebrews says in 9 and 10. The writer of Hebrews brings us to the insufficiency of the earthly tabernacle and the arrangement. He says, according to this arrangement, sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of worship. But they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Ultimately, what we see in the Old Covenant, and what the heart was lacking in the Old Covenant, is the inability of sacrifices to deal with our sin. To this we turn to Hebrews 10. 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you 
you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pain. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What he had said above you, I did desire to take pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Right away in verse 1, the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews gives us a lens through which we should view the law, by which is meant the old covenant and its totality. These things were not bad in comparison to the good new covenant. So we don't want to put up that juxtaposition that says, well, that's all bad and this is all good. No, it's not all bad. The writer of Hebrews says that is a shadow of the true realities that are coming and for us that have now come. The Old Covenant was a shadow of the good things to come. And these good things to come are the eternal redemption that Christ has purchased for us by the shedding of his blood, Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. As the author points out, because the law is a shadow, it can never buy the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, made perfect those who draw near. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, if you read through your Old Testament, we are constantly reminded of the inability of animal sacrifices to atone. In Psalm 51, 16 and 17, after having been confronted by Nathan for his sin with Bathsheba, David writes, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. Later in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel, in confronting Saul, after he has directly defied the word of the Lord, says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the force of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. And it gets worse. In Amos 5, 21 through 24, God has some very strong words for the nation of Israel as he speaks through Amos. This, he is speaking with regard to sacrifices that were offered with a wrong heart understanding of what they were. The Lord says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of fat and animals, I will not look for them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your hearts, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And lastly, Micah 6, 6, 3, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God and I? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice... To love kindness, kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In all those instances with the prophets speaking out on behalf of God against the people of Israel, he is speaking to a wrong part of understanding of what the sacrifices are for. The sacrifices under the old covenant were the provision that God gave to turn away wrath, but they were never able to solve the problem of sin. In fact, not only were they not able to solve the problem of sin, they served as a 
reminder of the problem. Look again at verse 3, Hebrews 10. In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sins. Think about it. Every time they sinned, they had to go off for a sacrifice. And then once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies on the day of the time and sacrifice a ram and a bull for the sins of the entire people. Every year. You would think at some point, someone's got to be saying, what is going on? This is not working. This is to deal with our sin, but we keep coming back day after day, year after year. Why? Because they were never meant to deal with the problem. It was God's provision to turn his wrath away for a time. These sacrifices were pointing to something. In chapter 9 and verse 22 of Hebrews, we read, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, nobody can come up to you and say, nobody can come up to me and say that the old covenant sacrifices were bloodless. Think about this. They are slaughtering animals daily. Even with all their bloodiness, the old covenant sacrifices could not take away sin because they were the shadow of the sacrifice that Christ would make when he offered himself on the altar of the cross. In Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7, we see a quote from Psalms 40. I believe this is a glimpse into a conversation that's had between the Father and Son, in which the Father is not asking his Son to offer sacrifices. He has prepared a body for him and asked him to be the sacrifice. In doing so, the Father was asking the Son for obedience. See, if you go back and read everything that I just read in those prophets, what is God looking for? He's looking for people to obey him. And the sacrifices are evidences that they couldn't. Obey me, but if you can't, or when you can't, kill this animal. Obey me, but when you can't, kill this animal. Obey me. The obedience was the problem. It was a hard issue that the sacrifices could never deal with. The Father's will and the Son's obedience are precisely what we see described in Isaiah 53, which is why I read it. As we saw earlier in Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 15.22, God delights in obedience, not in burnt offerings and sin offerings. This does not mean that the old, offerings, the old covenant offerings contradicted the will of God in any way. It simply means that God is not interested in a religious ritual if it is not driven by faith and obedience. Works without faith are meaningless in God's eyes. In verses nine and ten of Hebrews, we see in Hebrews ten we see that the meaning we see the meaning of Christ's sacrifice. He does away with the first order. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, of everything the Old Covenant was pointing to and foreshadowing. He's the substance to the shadow that we see. To go back to those shadows is nonsensical, which is part of what the writer of the author of Hebrews is teaching us. Listen, we have a true high priest. We have a holy high priest. We have an innocent high priest. We have a high priest that became one of us but separated himself from us by remaining sinners. This high priest was the shadow of the high priest that we see in the Old Covenant. Not only do we have a better high priest, we have a better high priest who is ministering in a better temple, in a better tabernacle. That high priest is ministering in the very throne room of God. You remember when Christ died on the cross, he yells, it is finished. And when he yells that the temple, the curtain in the temple was torn. 
Do you remember what the Holy Spirit was indicating through the laying out of the temple? The temple and the tabernacle and that curtain were indicating that you had no access to God. What's happened? It's been torn down. Why? Because Christ, our great high priest, is now in the true holy of holies, in the very presence of God, seated on the throne. And he didn't go there by sacrificing the bull. He didn't have to walk up to an altar and sacrifice a bull to offer it to get into this holy of holies. No, he takes himself, the only perfect Son of God, the Lamb. Kids, if you remember from BBS, what did John say? Behold the Lamb of God, who does what? He takes away the sin of the world. Christ's sacrifice on the cross has dealt with the problem. That's why we don't offer sacrifices anymore. To go back to that would be nonsensical. So listen, do you believe in this Christ? Do you believe in the person of Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, left heaven, took the form of a servant, offered himself as the only perfect sacrifice to not only turn away from the turn away the wrath of God on you, but he covers you, he washes you, he cleanses you. Do you believe this? Christ is your Redeemer. The only Savior of the world. To believe anything else like we saw in Sunday school is to believe why. Build your life on the rock that is Christ. Because if you don't, the day's coming when you will not be able to stand. Let's pray. There's my prayer. As we look at the old covenant, as we look at the priests, as we look at the tabernacles, as we look at the way that this covenant was laid out, that this temple was designed, that the way the tabernacle was designed, Father, in all of the endless, endless sacrifices that were made. Father, it's my prayer that we could see in them the shadow of Christ. Father, it's my prayer that we can see how no religious ritual, how no establishment of priests, how no pastor, how no preacher, how no building can do anything for us. But Father, it's my prayer that we see in all of that Christ, our perfect high priest. Our perfect high priest who mediates hour by hour is in your presence, interceding on our behalf. Father, it's my prayer that as we see that the tabernacle is no longer standing, the temple has been destroyed, that it no longer has to be destroyed because Christ, that great high priest, is seated in the true holy moments, in the throne room of heaven waiting for you to send him back to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. 
Father, most importantly, it's my prayer that we see this and we recognize this because Christ has not entered into the Holy of Holies by way of a meaningless sacrifice of a bull. But he has done this because he has come and he has sacrificed himself on the altar of the cross. And by doing so, he has eternally torn the curtain that separated me from you. Father, it's my prayer that you would move our hearts this morning to believe this truth. Father, you help us to see that in Christ we have everything that we need. Father, he is the substance to the shadow that you are trying to teach us. To go back would make no sense. To look to anything other than Christ is a pointless endeavor. Father, help us to see this. Father, if there's anybody here who does not know Christ, I pray that you would open their eyes to see him for who he truly is. That you would move us, that you would humble us to fall before the cross, to look to Christ, and so be saved. It's in his mighty, precious, and compassionate name.